Good morning. It's good to see all of you. You are in the process of surviving the affliction that is time change. So, good job. You can look around, see who's missing. Those are the people still living in the early 2000s that have to set a clock at night to wake up. I uh, always make joke when it comes to time change. It's like a, uh, I think it's like a mandatory thing that churches post about that. And I'm just like, there's literally no one who doesn't wake up to a phone anymore. And the clock automatically resets for them. But it's good to see you guys. We are uh, continuing in our series that we've been going through uh, for uh, seven, eight, nine weeks now regarding the attributes of God. We are looking at the characteristics of God. We're going to be doing this through Easter, and today we have, we have arrived at a characteristic that is probably the most embraced by the people of God, and I would say that it is probably the characteristic of God that is most embraced by those even outside of the church, and what we are talking about today is the love of God. It is true in part, I believe, that people love that idea that, that God is love, even outside of the church, because there is this common grace that God gives us, that He has given the world, that helps us to recognize love is a virtue. Like it is a morally good thing to love, to love people. And so we recognize that. The world tends to recognize that. And in that common grace that God has given the whole world, when we see rising in our society hatred and bitterness and discord and people doing evil things to one another, it bothers us, our core, and it causes us to rightfully long for a society in which we love, that we would love one another. And that through loving one another, we could experience the benefits of that, namely peace and happiness. So I think there's a sense in which the whole world wants that. They want peace, they want happiness, and they do rightfully see that love is important for us to attain those things. The Bible tells us that one of the things that's going to happen as we advance toward the end of all things is that the love of many will grow cold. And that is going to be true even inside of the church, where people that are inside of the church will struggle to love as we have been called to. As we see evil happening in the world, as evil happens to us, you probably know that by experience. You know you are to love. But when bad things happen to you, especially at the hands of someone else, it creates difficulty for you to be able to accomplish that that you are called to. It makes it hard to love people who are being harsh to you and hard to you. It's hard to love a world that is filled with evil. So we know that. So when someone rightly quotes the Bible, they quote the passage that we've looking at today, and they read, God is love, there is a resounding yes that comes out of our hearts, and I would say it even comes out of the, the hearts of those that are in the world. 
But in that, there is a subtle but deadly danger. Because when the Bible says, God is love, it means that love is sourced in God. That love is from God. But the way the world often reads that is the reverse. Not God is love, but rather love is God. They worship the idea of love. And not just true love, but they worship the idea of love that they themselves have created, that they have defined. In other words, we have a world that is not interested in knowing or embracing or sharing all of the divine attributes of God. They simply want to know the God of love. They want to know that the essential character for them of God is He is love. And ultimately they end up worshiping that idea. And when something happens where the other attributes of God that we've been studying are taught or shared, and those attributes collide with some individual's idea of what love is, they will recoil and want nothing to do with God. For you to say that there is a God in heaven who, who decrees that there are certain things that are right and wrong, someone who has made love their God will recoil from that and say, absolutely not. There's no judgment in love. There is no decree of right and wrong in love. Because what has happened is rather than put God on the throne of their heart, they have put love and their idea of love on the throne of their heart. So we said last week that, that part of God's saving grace to us is to send His Spirit to us to renew our minds. We said that literally means to renovate our minds. So we, Holy Spirit is doing the work of taking out of our mind thoughts that are not from Him and placing into our minds the thoughts that are of God. Literally changing how we think. And we really, really need that when it comes to this attribute that God is love. Because all of us, to some degree, have an idea of what it means to love someone. All of you have a way in which you best receive love. All of you have an idea of which you would, or how you would best give love. All of you have an idea of what love is. And that's great as long as your idea of love lines up with the true reality of love as it comes from God. So what I pray for us as we go through this attribute that God is love, and this picture that we have from 1 John 4, is that God will cause us to experience His love in our souls, and that He will reveal to us, if our love has grown cold, that we might repent of that and, and let His love be rekindled in us, especially as it relates to others, and if we have enthroned upon our heart a false idea about love, that He would change that for us and help us to see what love is.
truly. So if you are a note taker and you have one of our worship guides and you are interested in filling in the blanks there, we're going to start with this life truth. One trait of those who belong to God is that they look to Him to define love in a culture that counterfeits it. One trait of those who belong to God is that they look to God to define love in a culture that is constantly counterfeiting that idea. Now, if you have a Bible this morning, we're reading along as Scott read from this passage. Um, and if you will, please pull or go back to 1 John 4. And we're going to start in verse 7 and 8. John is writing, and this is not the first time in this letter that he's dealt with the subject of love. He's already addressed it once. I was coming back to it again. And he's speaking to the church, and he says, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 8, the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. So I'm going to pause there. So what is, what is John saying here? Number one, he's giving a command that we're going to come back to in a few moments. The command to the church is this, love one another. But he is, he's not saying love one another based on your own idea of love. He's saying love one another the way God has loved you. Learn from God. See how God loves and then love each other that way. And so he makes that case. Everyone who loves, and what he means there is everyone who loves in the right way. Everyone who loves like God has been born of God and knows God. His argument is that if you know God through faith in Jesus and you are growing in your knowledge of Him, you're going to understand what love is. And you're going to share in that love. And when you go to give love to others, the love that you give to others is going to be reflective of the love that God has given you because you are born of God. And then his next argument is the one who does not love. Again, the one who does not love truly. The one who does not love as God loves. The issue is they don't really know God. Because if they did... His love would be in them and His love would be reflected through them because God is love. Love is from Him. We have a saying in our culture right now. It's been, been around for a little bit. It's a phrase you probably are familiar with. Love is love. The idea behind that phrase is that no one gets to say one type of love or expression of love is greater than another. That you, you may love in a certain way, or you may love certain people, you may have a, a certain lifestyle in which you express love, and someone else may be totally different from you, but no one can say that one form or one kind of love or one expression of that is greater than another, because love is love. That's the idea. John is completely refuting that here. What John is saying is that there is a supreme kind of love, and it comes from the supreme being in the universe. It comes from God. That is true love. And any kind of love that reflects that, it's real love, and it's coming from people who know God. Any kind of love that goes against that, no matter what people call it, it is not 
actually love. They may think it is, but it is not. That's the idea here. The call that we have as the church, the call that we have as the people of God, is not to love in, in the way that, that we think is right, but to love as God loves. It is sourced in Him. That means we did not come up with it. As creatures, we did not create the concept of love. It's not something that was born out of us. It is from Him. God has been love. Love has been from God since before the foundations of the earth. God existed eternally. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in love. When God created the earth, He is sharing His love with us. And we have two choices. We receive His love and reflect it the best we can by the power of the Spirit. Or we take His love and we change it into what we want it to be and we teach that. And that's what John is saying. If you're from God and you know God, you will love as God loves. If you are loving in a different way, it is because you're not from God. That's his argument. So the question then becomes, okay, well, what does God's love look like? <laughs> so how do we recognize the love of God? And John is going to continue here. So let's look at verses 9 and 10. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent His one and only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. If we ask the question, well, what is true love? What does that look like? John says, here is the greatest example of it in human history. Here is the, here is the highest point of which you can look and find out what love is. It is when God sent His Son Jesus to atone for your sins. John says He was revealing love when He did that. In other words, something that was a mystery, maybe it was obscure, hidden, He revealed it in Christ. And not just in the atoning sacrifice of Christ, but in the life of Jesus. When we study the life of Christ and we look at how He interacted with people and how He lived, we learn what love really is. But focusing on what John taught about, let's look at a few things that we can learn about the character of the love of God. I put in your notes, God's love, and I put true there in the middle. So what we're talking about here is true love. What, what love is actually about? Like We even hear those words, right? I, I probably can't say true love without you thinking of a romantic comedy, right? Because that's the idea in our head. I found my true love. But what we're saying biblically, true love is the love that is sourced in Him. So what does it look like? Number one, in your notes, God's love is undeserved. And if you want to, next to it, that you can write uncaused. Undeserved or uncaused. So focus in on verse 10, the first part. John says, this love, the love that is of God, the love that is true, consists in this or comes from this. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. So at the very beginning, what John is saying and what he wants us to know is the love that God has shown to you, you did not earn. 
There is nothing in you that God looked at and said, okay, they deserve me to love them. There was nothing that He looked at about your life or my life that caused Him or motivated Him to then love you. Nothing. God is love, and God has chosen to share that love with us, not because of anything we've done, not because we deserved it, but because it was His sovereign choice to do so. So much so that we get into the Scriptures, like the specific way in which God says He loves you will stretch you, will stretch your mind, will stretch your theology. Because you get to Ephesians 1.4, when Paul is writing the church, he says, Church, listen, here's something I want you to know. God chose us in Him. Chose us to be in Christ before the foundation of the world in love. That we would be holy and blameless before Him. That is the peculiar and specific love that God has for you. And one way that you can look at that is you, you can sit there and say, Siri's going along with me, that you can sit there and say, okay, well, that is, God loves the whole world. God loves the whole world, and so He's, he's, he's blanketed the world with His love. And I'm part of the world, and He loves me. No, the Bible says, no, it is more specific than that. He knows your name, and He has placed His love on you. The evidence of that is the Spirit of God that is in you. That before the foundation of the earth, He placed His love on you. Let me tell you why I think it is important to plant our feet on that ground. It's because of this quote, how I like A.W. Tozer put it, if nothing in us can win God's love, then nothing in the universe can prevent God from loving us. I don't know many believers who've not wrestled with the question of whether or not God loves me or whether or not I have done something potentially to lose God's love. And here's the reality. If you did something to cause God to love you, then you could do something to cause Him to stop loving you. But if His love for you had nothing to do with you and nothing to do with what you did, then there is nothing you can do that will cease His love for you. That is why that point of doctrine is so important. His love is undeserved. You, the pastor that was the, the pastor here when I got here and was... Uh, the first guy that I really just heard teaching the Bible and it sparked something in me. He used to say all the time, you as a believer, you can do nothing to cause God to love you more and you can do nothing to cause God to love you less. He loves you. You can invite His discipline into your life by your actions. You can do things that are pleasing to Him or displeasing to Him, but His love for you does not change because it was not deserved to begin with. So God's love, true love, is undeserved, it's uncaused. Number two, it's redemptive. God's love is redemptive. Look at verse 9. 
God's love was revealed among us in this way, that God sent His one and only Son into the world so that, when you see words like that, because or so that in Scripture, it means it's about to say that this one thing is supposed to result in this next thing. So God sending His Son into the world is supposed to result in this, that we might live through Him. That's the idea. Now certainly, eternal life, that when we believe upon Jesus, that even when we die, we will live. But Jesus said, I have come to give those who believe in me life that they would have abundant life. So the type of life that we live through Him isn't just in eternity, but it's right now. In other words, Christ has come to offer you hope that life can be better. Now, you have to let the Bible define what that means. Because some people would take that and say, well, having a better life in Christ means more stuff, more prosperity. And while God may grace people with those things, when you read Scripture, the better life or the hopeful life that Christ will give to you is that you will live like Him and His Spirit in you and you will become like Him. And here's why I'm using the word redemptive. We had, we had dinner with Josh and Jennifer not too long ago and, and they, they, they use this language, these terms that talk about speaking redemptively. And so I asked them, I said, what do you mean by that? And then they went on to explain and I said, oh, okay, cool. Because what you just said that you teach in like pre-marriage stuff is exactly what else and I've always talked about in pre-marriage. We've just never used fancy language around it. So I'm going to start, I'm going to start talking the way you guys do because I like that better. So we've always told couples in pre-marriage counseling, when you get into marriage, don't say things like you never or you always because no one, that's, that's never true. Uh, yeah. Y'all see what just happened there? All right, that's very rarely true. How about I'll put it that way? Most of us, that's, that's not true of us. Like we don't always do something or never do something. But we speak that way. And when we speak that way, what we're really expressing is, I don't think you can change. I don't think you will get better. I don't think this situation can get better. And that's not redemptive thinking. The love that Christ gives us, the love that comes from God through Jesus to us is redemptive love. You can be better. Not a better person in your own power, but your life has hope. You can change. Whatever sin you're struggling with, whatever faults you have, whatever faults someone else in your life has with Christ, they can change. And you must think that way. And not only should you think that way, but you should hope that way. So the love of God is undeserved, it's redemptive, it's, number three, sacrificial. Going back to verse 10 again. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now I want to focus for a moment on sacrifice. There was a cost for your salvation. If you are in this room, if you're watching this later, and you know Jesus, 
and the Spirit of God is in your life because you have placed your faith in Him. That is a free gift to us, but it was not a free gift. It was a costly gift. Jesus suffered real pain. He suffered real affliction. He suffered real wrath from God. God watched His Son die. Not only did God watch that, but God poured His judgment out on His Son. There is a costliness to the sacrifice that was made for us that we will never understand, that we will never grasp. But we should do everything we can to strive to understand it, that we might be thankful in our hearts for what God has done. Because His love is sacrificial. And, number four, His love has the aim of holiness. The sacrifice has a purpose or a goal. And the goal in your life of the love of God is holiness. Which is, when Sam taught on that a few weeks ago, it is that reality of God being set apart and perfect in everything. And you and I will not be set apart perfect in everything in this life, but we are being made into the image of Jesus. And we have been already declared holy in the presence of God because of Christ. So in verse 10, atoning sacrifice. In the ESV, if, you, if that's what you use, the word there is propitiation. It is a word that is derived from propitious, which simply means something that brings a favorable outcome. What Jesus did on the cross was a sacrifice that brings a favorable outcome to us. What is that favorable outcome? It is that He forgives us of our sins and makes us into His image. He took what was ours, the shame and the guilt, the condemnation, the punishment for all that we have done and will ever do, and Jesus took that upon Himself, and what He gave us in return was His standing before God, His perfection before God, His blamelessness and His glory before God. Not that we are glorified as the Son of God, but that we are glorified as those who the Son is in through the Spirit. And in God's presence, God looks at us, and we have been declared perfect. That's the great exchange. That's the favorable outcome that has happened because of what Jesus has done. So I use the word holiness there. Titus chapter 2, it is said of Jesus that He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for Himself a people for His own possession eager to do good works. This is really, really important. Because in many people's definition of love, it means God forgives. God releases. But in many people's definition of love, they do not add that He purifies and cleanses and takes away sin. As a matter of fact, there's a popular book written by... Uh, 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 I'm going to use the word pastor very loosely, years ago, called Love Wins. 
And the whole concept of that book was that in the end, God loves people and therefore, in the end, they're not judged. Love scripturally, love in the Bible, is that God takes all of your sin. And what He gives you, though, is something much better. Not the opportunity to just go keep living the way you want to live, but to live a much greater life. A life characterized by Jesus Himself. His life. So that's, that's God's love as John describes here. It is undeserved. It is redemptive. It is sacrificial. It is holy. So let us go back for a moment to verse 7 and then let's look at the next verse in verse 11 because there's a command there repeated. In verse 7, it was, Dear friends, dear church, let us love one another. And then when you get to verse 11, he says it again. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. And it is right for you to read into that verse, we must love one another in this same way. Because that's what John is calling us to. Not a counterfeit kind of love. Not a love that's slightly different. The same love that God has loved us with. So, this command is for the church. Dear friends, dear church, dear agape, dear, I could go around and name all of us, dear David, dear Josh, dear Sarah, if God loved us in this way, which He has, we also must love one another. Not we should, not it'd be kind of good, not you ought to think about it, you must. Why? Because if you know God and you belong to God, then you will reflect God's love to others. You must do this. You must do this starting in the church. So how then, church, are we supposed to love one another? Number one, undeservedly. Don't look around the church. Don't find the people that have earned your love. I'm going to love them because they've been good to me. I'm going to love them because I like them. I'm going to love them because they, they, they do things that, that kind of match up with my personality and I connect with them well. Now, you love whether you have deemed them to deserve it or not. You love them because that's how God has loved you. You don't wait to just return love. You seek on how you can love one another. You actually take time to think about how you can love people in the church better. And I, I would suggest not only people that you're really close to, but I would suggest thinking about people in the church that you don't really know that well and saying, I wonder how I could love them. Jesus taught at a certain place in the Gospels that if you forgive and you're kind and you love people that forgive you and are kind to you and love you, I mean, that's good, but you're living like the world lives. God loves and is kind to people who don't love Him back. So you be like your Father. So we love undeservedly. By the way, that means when we hurt one another, when we offend one another. We must love one another anyway. We must do everything we can to forgive and seek peace 
And we can't stop until we have it. God doesn't give us the choice. If you know Him and you belong to Him, love one another. Undeservedly. Secondly, redemptively. In other words, think the best of one another. Don't look at people in the church and say, well, they've always been that way, they'll always be that way. No. Think redemptively. First of all, make sure that whatever you're wanting them to be or do is something that actually lines up with the Bible. But if they are in sin or if they have a personality deficiency, you trust that God can change that. In our marriages, trust, think redemptively, love in that way. Encourage one another in that way. Sacrificially. Sacrifice for one another. Give your time to love one another. Give your energy to love one another. When you have it and God calls you to it, give your material possessions to love one another. That's the kind of love that God has for us. And love with the aim of helping one another grow in godliness. The love that we have for each other that is undeserved and redemptive and sacrificial, the aim of it should be to help one another grow in godliness. My desire for Eric Acock's life, my ultimate desire for him should be that he is growing to become more like Jesus. And his ultimate desire for me in my life should be that I am growing to be more like Jesus. And the aim of our love for one another should have that as its highest goal. We can love each other because we have common bonds in family and we enjoy spending time together and because we just, you know, we're friends. But the highest goal, the highest purpose of our love for one another should be that we're helping each other become more like God. And that is how we're supposed to love in the church. We love with that aim. And so I'd ask you the question, how is this love different from how the world loves? The biggest difference is in the world's redemptive thinking, they want to help people become a better version of themselves. People in the world can love undeservedly. They can love sacrificially. They can even love redemptively, wanting someone to be better. And all those things, by the way, just point back to the common grace of God. But they want people to become a better version of themselves. And what we know about true love is that we want other people to become more like Jesus. The world will always reject that. The world will make happiness and peace and being a better version of yourself the aim of love. The church says the aim of love is that you become more like Christ. The world will always reject that thinking. So love one another. And John gives us some ideas here that loving one another is carries benefit. In your notes, number one, loving one another. When we do this as a church and we love one another the way that Christ has loved us, it is a comfort to your soul. We love one another as a comfort to our own soul. Yes, there is a personal benefit of godliness, a personal benefit that comes when we love other people. Look at verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, 
God remains in us and His love is made complete in us. John is not saying there that if you love one another the way God has loved you, then, then God will secure you in salvation. He's not, it's not what he's saying. He's saying that when you love the way God loves, it is a testimony to your soul that you belong to God and God is in you. Look at verse 13. He, he clarifies a little further. This is how we know that we remain in Him and He is in us. He has given us His Spirit. When you are able to love people in the church in an undeserving, redemptive, sacrificial way so that they may become more like Christ, and you're able to reflect on that and think about that, you won't think much of yourself. You'll think much of the Spirit of God in you. You will recognize, I can only do this because God is helping me. And it is a testimony to your heart. Yes, you are in Christ. If you can't love people that way, if you find yourself hating people and you don't want to love people undeservedly, redemptively, sacrificially, it is a sign to you that there is something wrong spiritually. Possibly even that you're not actually in Christ. So loving one another this way is a testimony, it's a comfort to our soul. Secondly, it's a testimony about your faith. A testimony to others about your faith. See where John says, no one has ever seen God? But if we love one another, God remains in us? Here's what John is saying there. No one has ever seen God. No one can see God today, but they can see God in you. They can see His love in you. When you love one another in the church undeservedly, redemptively, sacrificially to help each other be more like Jesus. It is a testimony to the world that God is real. Jesus said that. Jesus told His disciples, I give you a new command, love one another as I have loved you. And then He goes on to say what? Do this that they may know, that people outside the church may know that I am from God and I am in you. In other words, when we love each other in the church the way God has loved us, it is an apologetic for the gospel that it is real. Agape, when the world looks at a group of believers that say they belong to Jesus, and they see infighting and division and discord and bitterness and gossip, there is nothing about that that says to them, God is real. If, if, if the love of God is real, why is it not big enough to make the people who claim to know God love one another? That's the idea. So when we love each other in the church in this way, it's a testimony about our faith. And then third... When we love one another in the church as God has loved us, it serves as a discipline toward godliness. It helps us to be disciplined toward godliness. That's what Paul said. We know that the Spirit of God works in us to bring us to Christ-likeness, to sanctify us. But Paul also said, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. There is a responsibility that we have. So look again one more time, verse 12. No one has ever seen God if we love one another. 
God remains in us and His love is made complete in us. When we love one another, the love of God is made complete in us. That is a word that means it is fully developed in us. So yes, the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us. But John is saying as well, that one of the means in which the Spirit uses to sanctify us is when we practice the love of God toward one another. When we exercise the love of God toward one another in the church, the Spirit of God is using that to sanctify our hearts. Romans chapter 15, verse 5 and 6, you can jot that down if you like. Paul says to the church there in Rome, May the God of endurance and encouragement Grant you, church, to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. What Paul says in Romans 15 is, I want God to give you endurance and encouragement to live together in harmony and love, so that together... You glorify God. Which brings me to these last blanks. Church, God loves us, so we love each other that He will be praised. God loves us, so that we love each other that He will be praised. Now, I know we filled in the last blanks, but I want you to look at me and listen for just a moment because I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm about to say. But I do think what I'm about to say is important. The goal of Christian love is not merely community. I'll go a step further and remind you, the purpose of what we are doing in this place together, the highest purpose is not community. The highest purpose of why we love each other is not so that each one of us feels connected and like we have a place that we belong. The highest purpose of what we are doing together is the worship of God. Now, I don't want you to hear me say something I'm not. Is Christian community important? Absolutely. It's the second greatest commandment. As a pastor, I want everybody here to feel like they have a place and they belong and they are connected. I want that for you. But church, the reality is you can find connectedness in community anywhere in the world. You can go join an organization, join a club. As a matter of fact, one of the great issues and difficulties that I think the church has right now is when they start trying to figure out how to help everybody connect, they start looking at the world to figure out how to do it. So we're going to make sure we have these programs and these things so that when people come in, they feel like they belong and they, we can connect. No. Like, the number one goal, worship God together. Love God together. That's the highest goal. I want you to have both. First great command, second great command. I want you to be able to love God in this church and love one another. But listen, if you could only have one, pick the first. I don't think you can only have one. I think we should have both. But I'm saying that if, you, if you're going to grab a hold of one, it is, I can worship 
and love God with these people. And what happens is that is what is supposed to bind us together. It's not our common interest. It's not our personalities. It's not the things that we enjoy doing. What is supposed to bind us together in this church is that we love each other undeservedly, redemptively, sacrificially, that we grow in God together. And when Jesus is seen as the common bond among uncommon people, the world takes notice. And He is glorified. So, God loves us that we would love each other, that He will be praised. I want to ask you to turn your attention to verse 15. I don't want to pass by this. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in Him, and He in God. I want to say to you this morning, in this room, or if you're watching this later, if you're listening to what we're talking about, the love of God, and somehow in all of this, God is revealing to you Maybe that your love has grown cold. You can repent of that and ask God to enlarge your heart. Maybe that you have a false idea of what love is and you repent of that and move toward God's definition of love. But maybe the revelation is, I'm not sure I've experienced the love of God. I'm not sure that that's, that really is in me. And I know, I mean, I know this church. I know I'm looking at most people in here. You've been in church for a very long time. When it comes to salvation, that doesn't mean anything. Do you know the love of God having experienced it in your heart? And if you haven't, whoever confesses Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in Him and He in God. That isn't meaning you just simply say a phrase and God is in you. It means that when in your heart you make a confession and you say, I know I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for my sin. And I believe if I have any hope, it is in Him. And I want to hope in Him. That is the confession of faith that God promises to honor and send His Spirit into your heart. And He will remain in you. And you will remain in Him. So I want to ask the worship team to come up. And I want to invite you specifically this morning, and especially that if you have never experienced that love of God, that you would not leave here today without telling someone that. And I would love to talk with you if you want to talk about your relationship with Jesus. Even if you would just say, I, I believe I've experienced God's love, but it has grown cold in me. When we hear God's voice, let's not turn from it. That's what the Bible tells us. Don't ignore it. Beyond that, whatever God has laid on your heart this morning, you guys can bring the lights down. Whatever God has laid on your heart this morning as we've went through this Word, I just ask you to respond to Him. If it is honor and praise to God for what He has done for us, or if it is going to someone in this room that you feel like I haven't loved very well and I need to go and, and talk to them about that. Or if it is wanting to be prayed for. We'll have some prayer partners to my left. 
If there's something that you want to be prayed for that is weighing heavily on you, on you this morning, and you believe in the love of God that you can ask Him to heal, whether it's a physical healing or a relationship problem, I want to invite you to respond to God who has loved you before the foundation of the earth. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for teaching us about Yourself. Thank You, God, for ordaining that we are here today to be able to hear that love is from You. God, I ask that You would help us to repent, God, of any false ideas that we have about love. I ask You, God, that You would help us to repent where our love has grown cold toward one another, or maybe even toward the world. I ask You, God, to help us repent, dear Lord, where we have not loved well. I ask You to help us, God, where we have placed the idea of love in community above our love for You. I pray as a church, God, we would not get those confused. I ask, God, that You would give this church to be a place where there is deep community. People that love one another. People that are at home and hospitable and connected. But God, I ask above all things, while we are striving to get there, that we would be able to love You with our whole heart. That we would be able to worship You together. And that You, God, You, God, would bind us together. You, God, would unite us in our common love for You. That we wouldn't try to be united in our own interest or personalities, but we would look to You to unite us as a people with a common bond of Jesus. And I ask God that this church would have a love for You and a love for one another that would, that would have the notice, that would have the attention of our community. And that the people in this church, God, would have witness with the loss that they come across. And that witness would have influence because those people recognize the love of God that is on them. God, help us. Forgive us our sins. Help us to worship You now and respond well to You. In Jesus' name, Amen.